0: Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Be safe. Venture wisely. Today's Monday, August 31st. The Dow is down. The number of infected University of Alabama students is way up. And we're focused on the business of police reform. Joe Biden earlier today gave a big speech in Pittsburgh, accusing President Trump of fomenting violence while also calling for prosecution of looters and rioters. Trump tomorrow is still expected to visit Kenosha, Wisconsin, in spite of a request that he not do so from Wisconsin's governor and Kenosha's mayor. Now, it's easy for us to get lost in the politics of this or lost in what's infiltrated our social media feeds. But what's most important to remember is that the kernel of these conflicts was police brutality, whether in Kenosha or Minneapolis or Louisville. It's what lit the match. The question now, the single most important question now, is what can be done to make right what's so clearly wrong when it comes to the relationship between police and black civilians. It may feel like an intractable problem, but my guest today, Dr. Raishan Ray, doesn't think so. He's somebody who has spent more than a decade interviewing officers and civilians and running implicit bias trainings for thousands within police departments. He has ideas of what could help stop the next brutality and all that follows in its wake. We speak to Dr. Ray in 15 seconds, but first, this. We're joined now by Dr. Rayshawn Ray, a government studies fellow at Brookings and a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland. Rayshawn, you lead and have led anti-bias training for lots of different police departments. From your perspective, has it been effective?
1: Well, I think that the jury is still out on it. This is what I'll say. The program that we have at the University of Maryland at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research is way more advanced than just a one off or one to two hour training. So part of the problem that happens when people try to evaluate these types of implicit bias trainings is that they vary greatly. So when you're trying to compare them, people are comparing a one hour training to a one to two day training that we have that also puts police officers through virtual reality simulations that mimic the interactions they have. And then we can tell them how their attitudes relate to their behaviors. So I say that with a caveat, that if people want to do implicit bias trainings, I think they're important. The one that we do is approved by the state of Maryland, by the police training agency, actually. We've done it with the Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. military. It works. It's effective. But if you're simply trying to get someone to do a one or two hour check off the box type of
0: program, it's not going to be effective, You obviously have lots of different goals when you run one of these sessions, but what's kind of top of the list, the kind of that one thing you want everyone to leave the room with? The biggest takeaway
1: is that everyone has implicit bias, and it matters for our behavior. And for law enforcement, it particularly matters when they are under stress, when they have to make quick decisions, when they are put in positions where they don't have a lot of information. And honestly, this is a lot of the calls for service that law enforcement goes on. By them recognizing that there are biases, that they have them, Identifying what theirs are. They can hold those biases in check and make better decisions so that the civilians they're interacting with get home safely and they do as well.
0: You've developed some big ticket ideas for police reform. What are the most important ones?
1: We focus on outward policies and inward policies. What do I mean by that? The outward policies are dealing with things like civilian payouts for police misconduct. Right now, taxpayers are on the hook for the civilian payouts. So eventually, George Floyd's family. Also, Jacob Blake's family, Breonna Taylor's family are going to receive these large civil payouts. Taxpayers are paying that. What I suggest is that we shift that away from taxpayers and have police department insurance policies cover this. Now, the municipality will cover the policy, but it will lead to a level of accountability where you can see how a person like Chauvin has costing you money. The other things that I think are important are also looking inward. I think one big thing that's important is helping officers to experience the communities that they police in. They do that oftentimes in middle class neighborhoods, particularly middle class neighborhoods that are predominantly white,
0: send their kids to those schools. You're talking about a, basically a requirement that if you're going to be policing in a certain neighborhood or a certain city, you live there. That's exactly right. I think what needs to happen
1: is there needs to be a mandatory housing requirement and officers should receive a subsidy for living there. The reason why is because there is a study showing that police officers and teachers cannot afford to live in most major metropolitan areas in the United States. Why is that problematic? Well, these areas are more diverse. They oftentimes have varying household incomes. And so we want officers to experience the neighborhoods that they're actually in.
0: You've made the argument that just diversifying police forces when it comes to race doesn't, from your perspective, help really solve the problem very much. Well, it helps in terms of
1: optics, but it doesn't necessarily solve use of force in officer-involved shootings, which is what we want to solve. But there is also evidence that internally, It does help to improve relationships over time by having a more diverse police department. And I do think that diversity matters. It's important for people to contextualize it. We're talking about different outcomes. We're talking about use of force on one hand, and we're talking about internal policy on the other hand. Diversity can matter for one of those and not necessarily matter for the other.
0: When I think back to the conversation following Ferguson, so I guess we're talking now five years ago at this point. From a policy standpoint, a lot of the talk was body cameras. If we got body cameras on police officers, they'd know, quote, someone is watching them, and thus that would solve a lot of these problems. Was that a mistaken policy objective? So it wasn't mistaken. It was just
1: limited. So what I mean by that is people view body-worn cameras similar to implicit bias trainings as a panacea. These are individual level approaches, meaning at any one time, one officer has on a body-worn camera, an officer has went through an implicit bias training. But that does not impact the holistic way that race plays a role in policing from a structural and organizational standpoint. This is the reason why, in addition to body-worn cameras, in addition to implicit bias trainings and banning no-knock warrants, we have to deal with accountability. The other thing that's really important here is that civilians also need to be on the internal trial board or jury, the board that makes decisions about police misconduct. Nashville has done this with their community oversight board. Other cities should follow suit and have that model. That creates accountability, transparency,
0: and more equity in the process. Do you believe the phrase defund the police is just bad terminology?
1: I don't think so. I think it's doing what it's supposed to do. It is a protest slogan. And if we didn't have that slogan,
0: you probably wouldn't have brought it up just now. So it doesn't sound as good as saying reallocate funding. It doesn't sound as good as reallocate funding, but if that's for most people what it means, for those who don't understand that's what it means, it means something completely different.
1: Yeah, that's fine. But you know what? When people sit down at tables to negotiate policy, and I've been at a lot of these tables, they don't break up defund the police. They talk about reallocating funding. And you know what? Across the country, from L.A. to Baltimore, We have seen reallocations of funding. It's not always about removing funding from police officers. It might be about calls for service. It might be about response times. It might also be about not just reallocating, but shifting funding within police department budgets to get at not only housing, but also mental health for police officers, which their mental health is unfortunately horrible, but not surprising that 80% of them suffer from mental health problems. So the defund the police starts the conversation. We oftentimes have to realize if we look at MLK's Letters from a Birmingham Jail, he talked about direct action. Then he talked about negotiation. Direct action is saying defund the police. It's holding up a sign at a protest in the street. Then all of a sudden, the negotiation is sitting at the table, taking a market-driven approach to each city, to each municipality, and talking about reallocating and shifting funding.
0: Final question for you, which is, I guess, turning it on me and Axios, but media in general. I understand the media is a very broad subject and a very broad swath. But generally speaking, what do you think is the one thing reporters, editors should be thinking about that they might not be when it comes to this question of police reform over the last couple of months?
1: I think what's important is to have a diverse group of people responding to questions. So I think we've seen that in some part, but everyone from policymakers to researchers and policy analysts like myself, to activists, to everyday people responding to these questions becomes important. But I think here's a fundamental question. The fundamental question at this point in time is why still haven't we seen broad scale reform and why haven't we seen a decrease in police killings? Like that is the fundamental thing. So part of the logic is that, oh, this attention is going to change it. Policy changes it. And one thing that I've heard Senator Cory Booker say is that change doesn't come from Washington, change comes to Washington. So part of thinking through that is I think a key question is what will it take to get transformative police reform? I think what it takes is probably a new president in November and the Senate changing. And then all of a sudden, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act becomes policy, which I think is the most transformative piece of legislation that we've ever had at the federal level for policing.
0: Dr. Rashawn Ray, who you can follow on Twitter, at Sociologist Ray. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Welcome back. Well, we're watching today's TikTok, with expectations that its Chinese parent company, ByteDance, could announce a preferred bidder by this time tomorrow. But there's also a catch. Reports that the Chinese government may seek to block the sale, whether to Oracle or Microsoft or someone else, based on new tech export control rules. As has been true since President Trump kicked off the TikTok fire sale last month, the only thing to expect is the unexpected. Today, we're also continuing to watch school reopenings We know of the troubles with physical reopenings and even lots of hybrid models in terms of reluctant teachers and parents, but there are also new problems related to all remote reopenings. Los Angeles, America's second largest school district, reports that kindergarten enrollment is down around 6,000 kids. That's a 14% drop from last year, despite a district pledge to get devices in the hands of all students and broadband access for all homes. The LA Times also reports lower-than-expected first-grade attendance. The bottom line, the impacts of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come, even among those who were never infected. And lastly, here's the thing. I was looking for an uplifting final item today, but honestly, couldn't find one. Not even in the New York tabloids, which are pretty reliable for this sort of thing. So this week, I want to count on you. Please let me know about something genuinely positive happening in the world. By emailing me at dan at or by tweeting it to axiosrecap. I'm counting on you. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Schovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national trail mix day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.